This morning is Sunday morning, is November 5th, and our message this morning is about a man with two sons. Turn with me to Luke 15. A man with two sons. Are y'all turning? I rarely lie when I preach, but you better check just to make sure. Didn't worship good. I grew up in a church where worship was not all that uh, exciting to me. And uh, my father had one of those big rings that you get from winning things in football. And he would reach around my mother and pop me right in the head to keep me awake. And I love them for that. They were trying to instill into me discipline. And I did learn some things in that church that were very good, and I'm thankful for the men of God there that, that imparted that. You know, I learned where all the books of the Bible were. I learned some of the creeds of the church, some things that became foundational in my life. In my heart, I just thought, wow, it's supposed to be boring. Church is not supposed to be something that you endure, you suffer through for a credit to God. I just encourage you to circumcise your hearts this morning. That means to remove all of the garbage from your hearts. See if you can embrace the message and not just do church. You know, I don't have pews and stained glass in here, not only because they'd look ugly in my house, but I don't want you all to revert to that classroom kind of mode. I really don't. I want you to embrace the message and learn this. One of the parables that we're going to cover this morning is in Luke 15. It starts in verse 11. But before I get there, do you see your title? What does your title say in your Bibles? Parable of the Lost Son. How have you learned that all of your life, though? What is that called? The prodigal son. Now, if I introduce Steve to you, who is as close to me as any family member I've ever had, but I introduce him to you as ugly Steve, right? Steve, I pick you because nothing could be further from the truth. But if I introduce Steve to everybody that I go to as, hey, this is ugly Steve, do you think that might influence the way they think about Steve before they even him? In fact, if you talk about somebody like Thomas in the Bible, and every time you reference his name, you call him Doubting Thomas, do you think good things about Thomas? We've called this the parable of the prodigal son. It's interesting to note prodigal comes from a Latin term. Now, the Bible's not written in Latin. Jesus didn't speak Latin. The apostles didn't speak Latin. Latin was the language of the Romans. But by the year 400, the gospel that was for all of the world had been written in one language, Latin. And the scholars that came out of this Roman Latin machine that took over the church named this story for us the prodigal son. One of the reasons I'm pointing this out is because even the very has caused us to misunderstand what the parable is about. And uh, we're going to cover that. Before we do, I want to give you some background. Is that all right? I want you to know... One of my real pet peeves is when a pastor is talking about something that is critical, something that should be life-changing, something that impacts the way you live daily. And they pick up and they don't talk about what was before it or after it. Now, that was okay in the original audience because they had most of the word memorized. But the American church is exceedingly lazy, exceedingly lazy, apathetic in almost every way. We get on Sunday, all we're going to get all week because most of us are dominated by television and radio rather than any kind of literature. Now, that's not true for some of you, and I hope eventually it's not true for all of you. But because of that, I want to give you a little background that is here. The first is when you walk into our church, if you notice, we have these Jewish symbols all over the place. 
This is because Jesus was a first century rabbi. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But God chose out of all the time in human history to appear in the flesh in a Jewish man. This is because God uniquely designed the Jewish culture. I mean, He designed everything from the garments that they would wear to the buildings they would worship in to the song that we sang during worship, the great Hallel. You know, they sang that every time they went to the annual feast. They ascended to Jerusalem because anywhere you are in the world to the Jewish mind, to go to Jerusalem is to ascend because they think it's closer to God. It also happens to be elevated. And they sang these songs designed by God that have become our Scripture. Well, this is the background that the Gospel comes to us out of. Every one of the New Testament and Old Testament writers were Jewish. Some argue about Luke, but if he wasn't a Jew, he was a proselyte to Judaism. And when we remove the Gospel from its Jewish context and its Jewish roots, sometimes it causes misunderstanding. And one of the misunderstandings we'll cover this morning... I was going to tell you a little bit about the history of how that happened, but I just don't think it's as important as the meat that we're going to get this morning. Suffice it to say that for the first hundred years or so, the church was dominated by Jewish theologians. But as the church in Antioch grew and a second revolt between the Jews and an emperor named Hadrian happened, there was a schism in the church. And from that point forward, Greeks and Latins took over the church. Jews were considered people who had committed something called deicide. They were supposed to kill God. And this meant that they were to be uh, looked down upon and frowned upon. As we divorced ourselves from the Jewish roots, we inherited Greek ideas called Hellenism with emphasis on the first few letters of that word. What happened is Jews who who had said that the world was created and everything in it was good and was to be enjoyed and they blessed God for it and they thanked Him for the food that they just ate and they thanked Him for the day that they had. They thanked Him for the ability to breathe. They thanked Him for everything. Faded out of prominence in Greeks who had been taught everything in this world is evil and you in your flesh are evil and it is only your spirit that can be righteous began to be the teachers in the church. And this is the first time we start to see the blessing of inanimate objects, like the blessing of food, because it's somehow unclean. God created it and said it was clean on the day that He created it. He called this whole creation good. A a worldview and shift changed, and it's forever affected us. So part of what we're going to learn today is unlearning some of our previous notions. Have you ever looked at the Pharisees and gone, Oh my God, how could they be so stupid? Give it a little time. I promise you will look into the mirror of God's Word and see yourself as a Pharisee on many occasions. We have done the very same thing. It seems that every few hundred years there needs to be a reformation in the church. You know, when you turn on the TV, what you see is fishers of funds instead of fishers of men. You see crazy people with purple hair and thrones telling you what to believe about God and the ignorant masses sucking it up and buying it by the bushel because they like what they hear. Paul told Timothy these days would come. I want to tell you the truth. The reason Paul could say that is because it's always been true. There is a propensity in us to gravitate towards things that are not right. There needs to be a setting right of our base nature and craving what is true. We founded this church on the principle that if you seek truth, you will find it. But it takes bravery. And I encourage you this morning to be brave because God will call you to go against the grain. Everybody around you can say, this is the right way and we know it to be true. The only problem with that is in every century, men have been wrong who have done that. It takes courage to stand up for what God has revealed to you to be true. But that's exactly what God built His church on. 
How many people were there there the day that Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, oh man, you're blessed. This wasn't revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. That meant the entire religious establishment had missed God's message. But God would build His message on the fact that any one man can receive revelation from God. It's scary too though, huh? How many people have gone up in towers and drank Kool-Aid and done stupid, stupid things in the name of God and claimed it was a special revelation? That's what your word is for. Everything that I say today, you should research. You feel free to come back Wednesday. Challenge anything that I've taught. It'll make us both better. I encourage that. You won't find very many churches that do, but I do. You know why? It protects us all. I will do whatever it takes to get into the will of God with our word. This parable has been wrongly named the prodigal. You know a little bit about how the church got Hellenized and how this happened. I want to tell you a little bit about Luke 14, though. If you're not on the page where you can see Luke 14, look at some of your headings there. Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee in the early part of Luke 14. And there's a debate. The religious people had actually gotten so confused about keeping God's requirements. By the way, the law was intended to reveal God's heart to the people. Show them what was right so that they could do it. Well, one of the things that God did was for man's sake, He created a Sabbath, a day of rest, where man could rest from his toil, show faith in God that he would be provided for, and spend time doing only the things God wanted him to do. But like most religious people, the people in Jesus' day, taken this good thing that God wanted and so confined it in their way of thinking and so misconstrued it that they had it not even lawful to do something good on the Sabbath. And Jesus challenges that idea and He heals somebody on purpose on the Sabbath. I was told by somebody in a well-known denomination in a position of leadership, not to stop to help somebody on the way to church changing the flat tire because it could be the devil trying to keep me out of church. God bless him. He was doing his very best. He meant well. He wanted me to be in church. I understood exactly what he meant. But that is exactly the attitude that Jesus is trying to come against. Is it more important to be in church or to help somebody change the flat tire? We canceled an entire church service with 200 people one time to help a man roof his house because it was about to rain and he had no roof. We need to rethink the revolutionary way Jesus challenged the church. Get out of our ideas that just to sit on a pew, just to see the glorious light coming through stained glass and listen to Sister Bertha better than you play her organ is somehow a service to God. A service to God is being obedient to Him. That's a service to God. So he moves on from this healing on the Sabbath to another idea, a parable, a parable of a wedding feast and a table. This was particularly confusing to the listeners because a wedding feast was a big social event. You know, this is where Jesus did his very first miracle was at a wedding feast because in a town when somebody got married, this was something that was awesome. Everybody around came. They were excited to be invited and not to be invited was an insult. And right after he corrects this thought about not doing good to people on the Sabbath, He moves into this parable and he says, guys, when you go to a wedding feast, don't sit at the places of honor. What happens if the master of ceremonies comes in and asks you to move down so somebody else can take your seat? Instead, sit at a low place and let God move you up. I want to tell you, the church is ailing from this problem. Sometimes we look and we see ourselves as so much better than everybody else that when we hear even a powerful message, something awesome, enlightening by God, your very first thought is, oh, Charlotte needs to hear that. That Cassidy, I need to get that on CD because if Cassidy could hear that. This Bible's described in the Word as a mirror. 
the first thing that you should look in and see is your own life. Oh, well, we know that. But knowing it is not enough. We must do it. Our creed in our church is to perform out there what we've practiced in here. Why is Jesus telling these religious leaders this and the people, though? He's trying to pave the way for the idea that God in His character wants to do good to people no matter what day it is. God in His character is going to take those who are not esteemed and move them to the head, while those who have gained reputation and esteem for themselves, He's going to move them to the foot. The next thing that He begins to teach, if you follow through Luke 14, is instruction on when you give a luncheon. A luncheon's a particularly interesting thing in the Jewish culture. The middle of the day is not a time you could just depart and eat. You know why? There was work to be done. You ate early in the morning and you ate late at night. So if you're eating in the middle of the day at a luncheon, that's a sign of wealth. It's a sign of prosperity. The Romans liked so much how the Jews ate because it was a symbol of freedom. Jews ate reclining on their left elbow, eating with their right hand. Next time you read the story of the Last Supper, read it with that in mind and I promise it will make a whole new uh, story come to life. This is how John reclines on Jesus' chest while they eat. It's how some at the table didn't understand what Judas was doing. He was on a, one side of Jesus. Peter was on another. But we'll teach on that at another time. This is a sign of freedom and a sign of reconciliation. And what Jesus is teaching is when you give a feast, don't invite the people that are already your friends. Because what the meals are for is to be reconciled to people that maybe it's hard to be reconciled with. Don't choose who you do this with based on whether or not they'll reciprocate. Come on now, when you invite somebody to lunch, you pick the person that's hardest for you to go eat with? But Jesus did. wonder why he's saying this. Well, he's just got through eating in the house of a Pharisee and they're about to pick on him for the company that he keeps. How far has the church fallen? A man that I admire named Don Babin in Texarkana, Texas, took a church. Actually, it was a strip club. And he made it into a church. And he left a pole up in the center of the building to remind people that God takes something unholy and He makes it holy. That's what He does. The local media came out. It's funny how lost people can get when they see people not being religious but being godly. Came out and said, You can't do this! Pastor Babin, you... You, surely you're not going to take this building and make it a, a sanctuary. He said, lady, a sanctuary is a place you keep birds. I'm talking about the church of the living God. They cut to commercial immediately. One of the things that I like the most about this man, though, is every Sunday, sitting right next to him in the chairs, was the biggest crook in Texarkana. And everybody knew it. And church members were leaving the church. Don had just gone from 900 to about 450. And newspapers were writing bad articles about Don because this man is in the church. When I asked him about it, Don said, you think it's better that he sits with me on Sunday or that he stays home? And I was overwhelmed at the strength of this individual. Watching people leave. He said, well, how could God allow people to leave for this one man? Well, how interesting that you thought that. That's what our message is about this morning. Two more things happen before we get to Luke 15. One is there's a great banquet that's being given. This is another parable. And the people who are intended to come, the so-called healthy, 
make excuses, every reason in the world that they won't do it, while the crippled, the lame, and the poor show up. I'm happy to be one of the crippled, the lame, and the poor. Showed up in the house of God. Didn't deserve to be here. Maybe somebody else was more qualified, but He chose me. Immediately after that, Jesus covers the cost of being a disciple. Why would He do this? Now, out among all of these people, there are those who would be considered by society lowly. And they're hearing, and they're liking what they're hearing because for the first time in their life, somebody is giving them hope. There are those out there who esteemed their positions and loved the places that they sat at tables and their flowing robes and their gowns and that all men called them master and teacher. And they're hearing what Jesus says. And there's a part of them that wants to embrace Him because they know He's right. But the larger part of them couldn't embrace Him because they loved their reputation. I don't know which one you think more adequately fits you. I suspect a little of both. But when I look around the church today and when I examine my own life, I see an awful lot of flowing robes and people who love their reputations. And the men that I admire the most are the ones that will associate with anyone for the glory of God. This takes us right to Luke 15, which is what I wanted to cover. Let's pick up in Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Is that all right? If y'all don't talk to me when I ask you questions, I will cry and run out and we'll all be embarrassed. (laughs) Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Him to hear. I wonder why. It's amazing. When you preach about God accepting people, those who have never felt accepted by anyone will come running. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors are looked down upon because they've sided with the Romans and they're collecting taxes against their brothers. But sinners. In English, we tend to think of sin as something. I don't know what your conception has been, but the Greek word here is hamertolos. What it means is those who deviate from the way those who missed the mark that they were aiming at, or those who stray off of the path. The Hebrew word for it is very similar, and Jesus spoke Hebrew and Greek, but He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And it's chautol. And it means exactly the same thing, except it indicates a weakness. In other words, when you think of a sinner, quit thinking of somebody who is wicked, somebody who is evil, and think of somebody who has gotten off of the right path. Somebody that because of their weakness was drawn aside. And you know what this ought to do? It ought to start to conjure up in you mercy instead of judgment. Because it's not somebody who is wicked, somebody who is overtly evil, somebody who is a bad person. It's somebody who set it out on a journey and somehow or another got off course. Can you not relate to that? Have you not been that person? Are you not that person sometimes even today? To the Jews, to walk with God was called halakha. This was, Lord, we've heard about Your way. Help me to walk in it. What is the right way to put one foot in front of another? You would hear commands like honor the Sabbath, but Lord, how do we honor the Sabbath? And Jesus came to show us how to walk the law out in the right way. How to represent in our action God's characters. So when you watch what He does, He is trying to teach you what God is like. Now, there are some Pharisees in this place. We might call these modern churchgoers. 
in this place. And what do they notice? After all Jesus has said and done, they notice who's hanging around Jesus. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you... I want you to get this about parables. Quit thinking of these as solely allegorical stories. Don't think about these as only there were once upon a time in a far, far away galaxy. Listen to what Jesus did. He's speaking to an audience and He says, suppose one of you, He puts you in the place of this parable so that you're forced to engage it. You have to listen to the circumstances and it will demand of you a decision. What is the problem here? The modern churchgoers don't like who Jesus is hanging around with. So He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does He not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until He finds it? Let me ask you something. Is this a parable about a sheep or the man who's looking for the sheep? It's about the man, isn't it? You don't know anything about the sheep other than He's lost. But you're about to find out about the heart of a man in this. Why? Because Jesus is trying to explain about the character, about the nature of God. And when He finds it, He joyfully puts it on His shoulders. Why Middle Eastern shepherds do different things. But do I really need to think about this? Whose sheep is it? It's His. And what does He do with it? He puts it on His shoulders and He carries it back to where it belongs. Too long the church has made it too hard for people to repent. The Hebrew word for repent is teshubah. It literally means you've been walking in the wrong direction. Now you need to turn into the right direction. And we lay on people's necks a burden they cannot carry. We want to punish them and they're all too willing to be punished because they feel bad. The kind of God we serve will go seek out the one who has strayed put Him on His shoulders and carry Him back to where He needs. Now let me ask you something. You wear the name Christian, right? We stand up and we say, I am a Christian. We sing about it. Then be a Christian. Christian means Christ-like. Be an imitator of God. Find people who are hurting. Don't tell them how bad they are. You think they don't know that? In my youth, I was... I'm still stupid, but I was stupider in my youth. I stood at a popular nighttime scene and yelled at the people that they were going to hell. It's occurred to me since then. They know that. That's why they're going there. They'd like to forget about it. The days of John the Baptist's ministry, friends, this everybody needs to turn or burn. Look, I understand it. I can do it with the best of them. In my very base nature, even in the kingdom, I want to call down fire on anybody who's not doing something right. But Jesus has shown me that's not His Spirit. There's a place for that. It lasted about six months out of Jesus' ministry and then the man who did it lost his head. Most people already know what they're destined for. They don't like it. They don't see any way out. Have you never been victimized? Come on. Think about this. When I was a kid, I used to do push-ups every time I said a curse word because I had a filthy mouth. I could do hundreds of push-ups but could not turn off my mouth. Have you never had something in your life that you couldn't put away? Oh, no, of course not. Liar. Now, I put all that in the past tense because it's so easy to accept. What is in your life today that you're struggling with? 
How easy is it to throw a stone at Matthew because you saw him do something wrong and on your way to church, you hated somebody in your heart that cut you off in traffic? Jesus said, if your enemy strikes you on one cheek, turn him the other also. My God, go to Luby's. Cut in line and see what happens to you. Everybody just poured out of church. Saints, it's time for a reformation and it starts in your hearts. It starts with you. You can't change the global church of God. It can change you. And I found out from reading this book that 11 righteous men, flawed as they were, allowing the change to start in them, changed the world. We got more than Jesus had right here. Think about that. And I would say out of all the churches, we've got to be one of the tiniest. It just takes you being a real one. How many times have you heard the charge from the lost? Well, a church is full of hypocrites. Then why don't we be real ones? A man told me with tears sitting in Stephen's living room, the church is so full of hypocrites. I looked at him and said, why don't you be a real Christian then? He's reduced to tears. You know why? Because he doesn't think he can. We need to find in the Word how we can. And it's not by our effort. It's by the mercy of God. If you say you were saved, you need to rethink that. Yes, you began in a walk of salvation on a day you... Come on, church language. You got saved. But the truth is you're being saved every day. Every day you are dependent upon the mercy of God. Now, I'm not saying we don't walk in holiness. I do everything I can to walk in holiness. You'd be surprised the lengths I go to sometimes to try to stay holy. But I'd be a liar if I said I got it right every day. I am dependent upon the mercy of God. We need to quit raising up for ourselves pastors on platforms that are so high that they look like demagogues and not allow themselves to get close to the church because if they get close, somebody will see a fault. And oh my God, we couldn't follow after Him. He's a human being. How far do they fall when they fall? Guys, it's all over the news. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. One of the most powerful men of God is world-renowned for that. And I hear about it everywhere I go. You know how you keep it from happening? You don't allow people to lift you up, and you don't get lifted up. There'll never be a day, God willing, that I'm beyond reproach where whoever the least in the church is can't come here and say, Pastor, I'm not sure that's right. Let's re-examine that. You know why? Because I'm better. No, because I'm well acquainted with my weakness. And you should be too. You know why? As you start to understand what God's done for you, you have something you can minister to somebody else. When you're in touch with just what you were saved out of and are still being saved from, then you are qualified to minister that mercy to somebody else. Who changed this gospel to some child's fairy tale? Pray this magic incantation. Get dunked and you're good to go. It's a lie. It doesn't work. It's powerless. It leaves people either with a fire insurance policy or under condemnation never feeling like they can do anything right. These Pharisees are quoting Psalm 1 to Jesus. There's a problem with that though. Psalm 1 is about Jesus. It's who He is. You know? It's kind of like Craig's telling me a story about you know this guy named Matthew, right? Like I've never met him. And then he finds out halfway through the story, Matthew and Eric have known each other all of their lives. They said, this guy, this guy, he, uh, what did he say? He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. This is because Psalm 1 says, hey man, don't you walk in the way of sinners. 
Don't you sit in the counsel of the wicked. There's a real difference between a sinner and wickedness. This is borne out even in the Hebrew, also the Greek. A sinner is somebody who's deviating from the way, somebody who's straying. Wicked denotes absolute uh, amoral character. Have you never been around somebody and you could feel that? Yeah. Sometimes it's alarming. You want to know what do I do about it? Yeah. Sitting next to somebody and the spirit in you quickens, this is a child, Lester. What do you do? Hmm? But that's not the majority of people you meet. You know what the majority of people you meet are? They're like lost sheep. They want what is right. They don't know how to get there and they're convinced they can't because from birth all they've ever heard is everything about you is wrong. The God we serve made you the way that you are. He embraces your diversity. He just wants to reshape it into something that He can use. Why is it that when you go to a church, if the pastor has a certain kind of Bible, every member of the church has the same kind of Bible. If the pastor wears a certain kind of suit, well, that won't happen here, huh? Everybody dresses like that. It happens in all churches. The last church that I started, it happened in. You know, didn't mean to, but before long, because one guy has a certain kind of leather bag, you look out, and we've got a bunch of little cookie cutters out there with the same kind of leather bag. It's in our nature. We have to fight against that. The youth of our country cry out somewhere around 7th grade. My mom's a 7th grade teacher. She knows they're crying to be individualistic, unique, right? As long as it fits in with everybody else. There is an innate desire in us. God has put it there. Steve is supposed to be different from Eric. That's not wrong. God is not trying to shove us into a mold. He's simply trying to take what He's invested in you and do something good with it. They misquote Jesus. The difference between going in the way of a sinner and sitting in the counsel of the wicked and what Jesus is doing is a matter of influence. You are forbidden in the Scripture to sit in a situation that is causing your counsel to be corrupted. You are forbidden to join with sinners in their sin and doing things. You are forbidden to be in a situation where you would be influenced in a negative way. You know what you're not forbidden to do? You're not forbidden to love people who are headed the wrong direction, to try to be a godly influence in their life. Did you know it was unlawful for Jesus to touch a leper, and yet Jesus never broke a law? He knew that if He touched them, they wouldn't be lepers. Come on, saints. Where are you? Where are you? Can you not hang out with cousin so-and-so? Can you not hang out with somebody across the way because they're unclean? Well, perhaps if you were more of a man or a woman of God, after time they wouldn't be unclean. Now I understand this calls for wisdom. So does everything else in the body of Christ. This is not a set of children's rules. You don't get the download and in three minutes you got it together. In fact, the Bible says work out this salvation with fear and trembling. You understand what that means? That means that there is life and death on the line in every situation and that means to govern our actions. Be careful how quickly you dismiss somebody. What if Jesus didn't? And if you throw them away bearing His name, have you not just made Him guilty? Have you not just represented Him wrongly to the world? You know, I can't think of an American church you could walk into and anybody is struggling with whether or not it is Christ-like to visit a prostitute. can't think of one. And if there is one, I don't want to know about it. And yet Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, don't do this. Don't do this. It's like pointing Jesus to that. 
Now, we all read that and we go, oh, those stupid Corinthians. How could they not know that? How many things do we join Jesus to? How many things have we made Jesus a part of? Some kind of religious apartheid. You know, including everybody who's not just like us. Adam's got a, a relative who's in jail. Now, I know nobody can relate to that because nobody's ever known anybody in jail, right? Lord, I come from South Louisiana. <laughs> the man's life is beginning to change. There's about three reactions to that. And the first one is, oh, that's jailhouse religion. Well, friends, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but Jesus said He came to preach freedom to those who were in prison. You may not have had bars in your life, but if you never felt in prison, you haven't been saved. You think you were born righteous. The second one, reaction that this man has got is from the other kind of religious crowd. This one of the few things that really, really upsets me these days. He ran right out and he got baptized. And because he had only read Matthew, it's the only book he's read yet, but I'd say that's a pretty good start. He went and got baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So a visiting preacher told him he couldn't be saved yet. He didn't baptized in the name of Jesus. Sounds like his ox has fallen in a ditch, but he won't help him because it's a Sunday. Doesn't it? Look, I love all those little because I've spent my life in the Word. I'll happily play Bible trivia with anybody in the room. But that's not what God's character is about. You can be baptized with a big gulp in a ditch if your heart's right. Now, I'm not telling you that I want to run right out to a ditch and get a slurpy cup and baptize people. I would prefer to do it a different way. But who are we to exclude God's moving in people's life because we don't like the way that it looks? And then what do we do? We say, oh, but there's no scriptural precedent for that. Show me the scriptural precedent as if this is a law book and you're a lawyer. I want to ask you something, theologians. Show me a scriptural precedent for hawking up a loogie into the dirt and shoving it into somebody's empty eye socket to make an eyeball. Where is the scriptural precedent for that? And yet Jesus did it. Now what kind of heart is it that says, oh no, that can't be done because this is a law book over us. It's a master. This is intended to show you how to live. And Jesus is teaching about the character of God. He said, suppose one of you had a sheep. Let's make it something you care about. Have you noticed? You teach on suicide. You teach on whatever it is that the church has made a dogma. And as long as it hasn't touched your life, it's a very cut and dry thing. But as soon as it has touched your life, all of a sudden things become gray. So Jesus puts them right in the, in the firing line here, man. Suppose it's one of you. I'm telling you this morning, suppose it's one of you. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep. Get this. Sin does not separate God from you. That's wrong. If it did, none of us would have any hope. Sin does not separate God from you. It separates you from God. When He touches you, He knows you'll be clean. It's we who are scared to touch Him when we've sinned. Not the other way around. He went, he went looking for Adam and Eve after they had sinned. They were hiding from Him. He was not hiding from them. The church acts like it's the opposite. 
Gabriel sinned. Oh my God, none of us have ever done that. He got caught. That's what none of us have ever done. Let's throw him away. God can't use him now. Let's at the very least punish him. Let's put him on probation. Make sure he feels good and bad about it. Meanwhile, we're harboring and hiding the sin in our own hearts. Is this what the Bible teaches about restoration, saints? No, but it's what the four of my church doctrine teach. Well, I'll tell you what that's good for. No, I won't. We ran out of Kleenex, didn't we, Steve? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. It's his. There's ownership there. God cares about you. Not about you if you've been in church a certain amount of time. Not about you if the church people like you. The church people wouldn't like Jesus. And if Paul walked through the doors of most churches, let's just pick the ones that call themselves first. Whatever denomination it is, first. I can use them as an example because they've named themselves first. They want to be used. First whatever. Paul walks in, right? Paul is wearing a Jewish prayer shawl. Paul doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Paul doesn't reject himself from Judaism. He said, I myself keep the law. How well do you think he would fit in? Probably not all that well. Now let's imagine he doesn't have glowing, wonderful, glorious, exalting things to say about the six-foot-tall icicle standing behind the pulpit. Oh, well, now he's thrown out. It's like talking about somebody's high school. The Bible says you are a fool if you spurn correction. If you have something to say to me that's correction, you're supposed to embrace it. Uh, in fact, instead of this exalted stage, the Jews taught from a hole in the ground in a synagogue. Think about how far we've come from that. This means that while I'm teaching you, I'm standing in the lowest position in the room to be very clear that to read the Word, to stand in this office means you're supposed to be the most humble man in the room. What have we done? Oh, the higher the stage, the more holy they are. Until they get caught with the secretary. Then we never knew them. I feel bad for those guys too. I don't want to be one of those guys. You know why? When you allow yourself to be lifted up, then who can you go tell? I'm struggling. I need help. Oh, some out-of-state board. Oh, that works well. Hadn't it worked well? Yeah, it's worked well through the centuries, hadn't it? Forgive me my sarcasm. I do get a little motivated about these things. I tell you that in some way, in the same way, there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Where is the heart of God? The heart of God is in seeing people who have deviated or digressed from the way God intended returning to the way that God intended. That doesn't sound like a left foot of fellowship to me. In every town I've lived in, the biggest church in the town used to be a member of some other church and they got thrown out. Wouldn't you think that watching God's hand on the other thing would cause you to repent? They start in feed stores and they start in garages. That's not even an endorsement of those churches. It's an endorsement of God. He will take the rejects of society and make them kings because that's the kind of God He is. And He gets glory for it. The bigger I have fouled up, and He still uses me. Who gets glory for that? Everybody knows what Eric is. But everybody can see what God has done with Eric. I can tell you out of my high school class, I would have been voted least likely to be saved, without a doubt. Not because I didn't know the Word, 
I could quote it better than most people. I just didn't know how to live it. I found out most of the churches in that category, except they can't quote it either. I was living like hell all the way to heaven. I actually took Piro to church for something or another to get this Indian saved. <laughs> then when he got born again, totally radically born again, I persecuted him and me feel guilty. Not only does the church chew up people and spit them out, it hates them when they do repent. Especially if they repent and don't conform to the 9, 14, 7, whatever it is, points of doctrine. Because how can anybody be right outside of our unique revelation? Lots of people have thought that. What was that parable called? What's the head say? The parable of the lost sheep. But it's not really about a sheep, is it? It's about the man who's looking for the sheep and the kind of heart that he had. This next one's called the parable of the lost coin, but it's not about a coin. Not at all. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins. Now, my wife's not in here, so I can speak freely about this. Anybody ever seen Meet the Falkers? Of course not. That had a bad word in it, right? But you may have heard about a movie called Meet the Falkers. At one point, an airline stewardess asked the star of the show for his bag, and he said, Lady, if you can pry it from my Kung Fu grip, you can have this bag. That was kind of a humorous moment in the show. My wife would not part with ten silver coins easily. She'd hide them in her purse. She'd grow them like the parable of the talents because she would have a use for it at some point. So he says, Suppose one of you women has lost a silver coin. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found whose lost coin? Mine. She didn't disown it when she lost it. In fact, it was something of value she was searching for. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's not about a coin, friends. We serve the kind of God that places value on you. Let me tell you how much value. The most expensive real estate in the world, in fact, it can't be bought at any price, is in Jerusalem. The most important event in all of human history, in fact, every time you sign a check or write a date, you're giving a testament to the day that Jesus Christ was born. happened in that place. The most important human that the world has ever known and the most important place that the world has had, shed His life. And we sing the songs about it. He shed His blood so that the sinners would be saved. Right? We sing about it. We all accept it. I want you to think about what that means for you. That means that the most important substance on the planet was given for you. Guys, I wouldn't give ten bucks for something I didn't value, much less sell everything I have to get it. God poured out the very best He had for you. Do you think he doesn't value you? Come on. Anybody ever bought a new sports car? Gabe's bought a new sports car. And bless his heart, I love it. It's new to him. You know, it's not new, but it's new to him. And I love it. Something in me can just relate to that. You know, and I can find every scriptural justification that we pre preachers are good at that. You know, Elijah tucked his cloak in his, in his belt and he outran the chariots. You know, every reason I want to speed. And uh, 
I notice when he parks it, he can't help but glance back at it. Yeah. And he, yeah. he's parking at certain distances from things, right? I mean, you don't want to park it under the pigeons, do you? Why? Because you value it. God values you. Your dad may not have valued you. Your mom may not have valued you. Your church may not value you. But God does. You hear me, Devin? Devin won a swim meet the other day. One of the very first ones he was ever in. That felt good, didn't it? God's called that young man. God values him. It doesn't matter what the world's tried to show him about him. That's what God says. The problem in this scenario is the religious people are trying to throw out everybody they don't value. And God's saying, you don't understand. I value them all. I value them all and most of all the ones you value the least. We need a revolution in our hearts. You ready for the parable we're supposed to read this morning? Can you all hang in there with me for that? See what happens when you give me a microphone. (laughs) Jesus announced His ministry in Luke 14. I'm sorry, Luke 4. You don't need to turn there. I won't lie to you. Verse 18, and He was quoting Isaiah 61. And what He said was, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. Do you remember what He anointed Him for? To preach good news to the poor. To preach freedom to the captives. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. Does anybody know what that acceptable year is? Call it out if you know it. Oh, wow. We study our books all the time, right? And the thing that Jesus announced His ministry. Did you say it? She did. It's always my favorite ice cream. Cherry Jubilee. I try not to eat it now. I got that Dunlap disease. He was proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. I want you to understand that every year in Israel marked off in numbers of seven. Because on the seventh year, you had to return any Hebrew slave that you had. Then they marked off numbers of weeks of years. Because every 50th year, every debt in Israel, period, was canceled. You know what Jesus showed up saying? If you've been in prison, I'm going to set you free. If you're poor, I'm here to meet with you. If you're indebted, I'm canceling all debts right now. You know who didn't like that? Those who weren't indebted. You know who loved it? Those who were indebted. Saints, Jesus said that He did not come to call the righteous. He came to call the sinners. Now, the truth is they were all sinners. But some recognized it and some didn't. You want to find the way to God's heart? Admit your weakness and ask for His strength. You want to find the way to God's heart? Don't think of yourself as better than you are. Allow Him to move you up. And He does that in time when He can trust you after He's examined you. It's funny. He told those who were proud, I'm going to burn you. He told those that were lowly, I'm going to lift you up. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the world, the golden head on a statue in Daniel, one of the first global empires, ate like an animal on all fours for seven years. The last recorded words he has in the Bible is God is able to abase the proud. So what kind of God does that? The same kind that will take a servant and make him a king. What God is looking for is us to understand His character. He is utterly merciful to those that know they need it. So often we want to give people what they deserve, right? 
Well, David did that to me. He deserves what he gets. All those years I helped David. All those years I did everything David. Now he turns. He deserves it. Right? Oh, no. Y'all have never heard those words, have you? Much less uttered them. Does David get what he deserves? Or will God give David what he needs? See, that's a question in your life. Are you going to give other people what they deserve? Are you going to give them what they need? And I want you to hear me carefully. Jesus said, if you do not show mercy, you will not be shown mercy. So think about that. Are you going to give others what they deserve or what they need? Well, what's been done for you? It's so easy to see everybody else's unrighteousness, isn't it? Spend some time looking in the mirror. Oh, it manifests in different ways. But saints, it's there. So, we got a parable. It says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. That was the title of our message. A man who had two sons. Why would we call this the parable of the prodigal or the parable of the lost son if we're telling a story, first of all, about a man with two sons? Oh, because it's so much easier to see everybody else's sin, isn't it? And the word prodigal, by the way, means extravagant, lavish, wayward. It's so much easier to see the extravagant, lavish, wayward sin. But Jesus said, for a man to look at a woman lustfully in it, with his eyes, he's committed adultery in the heart already. But it's easier to see if they commit adultery out in the open, isn't it? They wanted to stone that person. The church is in the same business today. We'll prosecute any sin that we see outwardly. And we let all the ones that are inwardly go as undiscovered territory. Right? Darkness hates light. It'll shine on your heart and it'll cause you to change. Saints, this word is first and foremost for us, not anybody else. This message, who's he talking to? He's got to have somebody in mind. I'm sure he's talking about me or my family. Yes, I'm talking about all of you and all of your families. Every one of you, but me first. I've wrestled with this all for the last two weeks before I preached it. I'm not standing here as somebody who gets this right. It's out of my weakness and not getting it right that makes me know I need to preach on it. God, that's scary. Go back and look at the sermon titles. You'll find out what pastor struggles with. (laughs) Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between... Father, give me my share of the estate. And he divided it between who? Them. Me is one. How many is them? More, right? I've read this for years. The reason I went into the whole idea of divorcing yourself from Jewish roots is, oh, I preach it well enough, but it's hard to break old habits. When I read this, I've been told this is the parable of the prodigal son. I never noticed that word, them. I thought, oh, this is the story of the one bad son who took his dad's money and went off and spent it on harlots and horrible things, right? And my emphasis was always on the son, the bad sinner. Don't be the bad sinner. But as I began to examine it in its Jewish context, I found something entirely different. You remember Jesus said, suppose one of you had a sheep? Well, here, He says, there was a man with two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Every listener in the first century audience is putting themselves in the role of that son as they're listening to this. You know why? 
What a slap in the face. When do you normally get your father's estate? When he dies. So what is it saying if your younger son comes to you and says, I want my share of the estate? He's saying, I wish you were dead. You're worth more to me dead than alive. What an insult, right? In the Jewish culture, who gets the majority of their father's inheritance? The firstborn. And it makes it a point to say this is which son? The younger. So we have a son who's not the leader in the family, who's not next in line, the younger son coming and insulting the father. Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The first century audience is floored at this point because the older brother has an obligation. His obligation is the next in line in the family is to make peace between his younger brother and his father. To reconcile between the two of them. Not to allow this to happen because it is a shameful and wrong thing to insult your father in this way. But he kept his mouth shut and the property was divided among them. It's not a parable about one man and one son. It's how a man had two lost sons, but in very, very different ways. And the parable is not about the sons. It's about the man, because the man in this story is God. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. Don't read the rest of that. Look at me. In the Jewish law, the Mishnahs, the oral law, in other words, when the Word said something like, uh, honor the Sabbath, well, sages throughout the centuries wrote down what they said Moses had handed down orally about how you keep the Sabbath. And much like Catholicism, where church tradition is equal to Scripture, right? Well, the Jews were not all that different. They took their oral traditions and made them equal to the written Word. And when you read in that, what you find out is how they carried out their inheritance laws. And what it says is that it's horrible to do this, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it with this provision. As long as your father is living, you cannot throw him off the estate. Uh, In legal language, sometimes they call this usufruct. What it basically means is the man who's living on it no longer owns it, but he has uh, control over it. So how did the son get together all he had? Wow, what a horrible, horrible insult to the father. He says, Dad, I wish you were dead and I want to go to a foreign country. I cannot sell this property out from under you while you're alive. So I'm going to sell it to Brent and he's not going to take possession of it until you're dead. Do you think I'd get a good price for that? Let's say it's worth a million dollars, but Brent doesn't know when he's going to get it. He can't have it until Dad dies. So what's he going to pay me for it? Maybe 200000 What an insult. Everything that the father had worked all of his life to provide to his children, they're throwing away. Well, the younger son's throwing away, but the older son accepted property. He accepted it then, divided among them. What an insult, right? What else does that mean? Now, instead of just two sons who misunderstood their father, there's a buyer out there waiting for the day. Because the sooner the guy dies, the better for him. Property's worth a lot. How sad. Not only does the younger son wish his father was dead, and the older son wish his father was dead, but now they've spread it to another buyer. It's a funny thing.
Then he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. This is where you get the term prodigal because he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Is that a sign of punishment? Are hard times in your life a sign of punishment? Boy, isn't that a question we wrestle with? There's nobody that you love more than, than God, right? And yet the hardest thing to figure out in your life sometimes is, is this God doing this to me or is this the devil? Right? Couldn't be two more opposite sources, but they're both a little beyond your natural senses, so it's hard to tell sometimes. What mercy. God didn't allow the famine to come during the time of His plenty. Then He would have weathered it without having returned. God put Him into a famine during the time of His greatest need so that He would see something. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. I want you to hear this though. I've read this for years and I just didn't get it. Think, oh good, right? He's repenting. Listen to his heart though. He doesn't understand his father's love. He still doesn't understand his father's love. He and his older brother have treated dad like an employer. Dad, I want my paycheck. Dad, it's Christmas bonus time. Dad, I want this because it's what's right and lawful for you to do. He goes back and he's going to treat his dad as an employer. Oh, out of the feeling of I'm just not worthy. But it insults the depth for which his father loves him. How many people are in church and serving God? It's not out of a sincere, loving, overwhelming desire to please God. It's an employer-employee relationship. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Daddy seen when he got all the way back and had groveled at his feet, right? No. When did his daddy seem? Oh, well, when the church got together and they all decided the man had sufficiently repented. No. When did his daddy seem? He was looking for him while he was still a long way off. Guys, I can relate to that. I may not be where I need to be yet, but my father sees me approaching it with all of my heart and at least I'm not back with the pigs anymore. Hebrew says it those who have been cleaned and returned to Waller with the swine? At least this guy recognized where he was and knew he needed help. So many are wallowing with the swine and don't even know it because they're all dressed nice. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Get this about God. His very first thing while the people are being drawn into the story and they're putting themselves in this role, what Jesus is communicating is after telling your dad you wish he was dead, after running as far away from him as you can so that he can't see what you're doing, showing that you despise his way of life. The moment he saw him take a step back, he was filled with compassion for him. Church, where's our compassion for people who are still a long ways off? Why have we forgotten the miry clay we've been drawn out of. He was filled with compassion. Part of living a life 
worthy of the call. That's what these ladies were studying this weekend. Part of being an imitator or disciple of God, part of it is giving up everything that you thought was right and accepting only what God says. And what does God say about the person who is trying to come back? Be filled with compassion for them. There's no desire to punish here. There's no desire to make Him live up to your standard. He's filled with compassion for Him. But while He was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and was filled with compassion for Him. He ran to His Son. The Father ran to the Son. The Father who was wronged, the Father who both sons had been horrible to Him, ran to meet a Son. He didn't make Him come all the way there. God will meet you right where you are. But I have to get right before I can start going to church. I've got to get right before I can meet with God. He will meet you where you are. You say, but you don't understand. I'm a slave to this. I'm a slave to that. He came to set you free. You say, but you don't understand. This is just the way I am. He will change you. Give Him a chance. He will meet you where you are. One of my favorite quotes came from Gandhi. He said, I've examined your Christ and Him I like. It's His followers I have a problem with. I never thought Gandhi and I would agree on anything, but I found something of noteworthy value. How long will we not imitate God? We are called to imitate Him. He's teaching this to show the leadership in the people what God is like. When you see people far away, have compassion on them. When His disciples wanted to burn a village for not accepting Him, said, Lord, let's call down fire on them. Right? First time I read that, I'm 18 years old, I'm like, yeah, call down fire on them. You see, you don't know what spirit you're of. God didn't come to burn us all. He's not a big angry God with a stick over your head waiting to squash you. He's a compassionate Father looking for the slightest inkling of somebody who had deviated from the way but is now trying to turn back. And He will meet you where you are and He will help you. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. There is no stern rebuff. There is no rebuke. There is no shaming him. Life has already shamed him. Friends, I want you to understand, I taught on the principles of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven starts now with what you do. It's not some faraway place. It's what you do in your life now. What I didn't tell you is the kingdom of hell is not some faraway place. It starts now. It starts with what you do in your life. And when you are the anti-God, when you don't show compassion for those who are a long ways off, when you don't run to meet people, when instead you spurn them, push them away, and harshly judge them, you're extending hell into their lives now. What do you think it would be like for you? We always define sin as things that we shouldn't do that we do. You know, that's not really how the Bible defines sin, although that's true. It's the good things that you should do and you don't. That's what James defines as sin. Because there is a right way. Ephesians 2 teaches that God saved us by grace, not through faith, and you all know that. So that we would do what God prepared in advance for us to do. Quit thinking of your Christian walk as things that you don't do. Well, I don't smoke. Well, good for you. Most of the theologians throughout time did. Well, I don't drink. Oh, well, good for you. Jesus turned water into wine. Say, so, well, I, I don't this and I don't that. What 
doesn't make you a Christian. Read the parable of the sheep and goats. The goats all failed to do anything. The sheep tried. Now, oh, if what you've heard out of me is Eric wants you to smoke and drink and whatever else I said, well, then you deserve what you get. You wouldn't have understood Jesus in either. I'm not telling you that. God wants a righteous life. He wants that. But quit looking for reasons to exclude people. Well, your body is the temple. Well, think about that next time you eat a hurt or a Big Mac. We're Pharisees in so many ways and we just don't know it. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Why is he saying against heaven? Because in Jewish culture, your father was in authority in your life and was to be treated as God's representative. See, he did this to his father, but he was really doing it to God. Now, this works the other way. The father realizes he did this to me, but it was really to God. And it's the father's job to act like God would act to him. You know, the commandments have a promise in them. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you have a long life. Why? There's never a commandment that tells fathers and mothers to love their children. Did you know? You don't have to teach a father and mother to love their children. Love naturally flows downhill, but it has to be taught to go the other way. It naturally flows that God loves you. It naturally flows that if somebody loves nobody else, they love their own children, at least at first. But those kids have to be taught to love their father the same way we're taught to love God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Not just any robe, the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. No penalty. No probation. Nothing but lavished grace. What is God like? God is like an insulted father whose children did unspeakable things to him and he loves them anyway. And he lifts them up anyway. And he wants what is best for them anyway. And he pours out all he has for them anyway. Now, what are you going to be like? Oh, well, we're going to love with a few conditions. How many of you have Corinthians 13 on the wall somewhere in your house? Love always trusts. Love must be sincere. All those things. And it's not true about you. Let's let it be true. Let's imitate God. Said, but that doesn't feel very religious. It'll be very powerful. It'll change the world. Because the church lady who's running around representing Christianity for us doesn't do it. Meanwhile, the older son, we'd almost forgot about him. What do we have with the younger son? We have a son who openly insults his father. He goes off. It's very obvious everything that he's done, right? And he's restored. The older son's a little more obscure, isn't he? Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The servant understood. Dad's so happy he's got back his boy safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He became angry. Why? Well, because the son's insulting the father. No, he did the same thing. He's angry because his brother wasted the wealth. No, he accepted the wealth. Why is he angry? 
because the younger son doesn't deserve what he's getting. Understand this if you don't understand anything else about God. He does not give you what you deserve. If He did, we would all be damned. He gives us what we need. And what this son needed was mercy. He needed grace. He's angry because he doesn't think his brother deserves this. How many people in church are the same way? Oh man, you go tell somebody that a new Christian, somebody who was in blatant homosexuality two weeks ago, has just seen a vision of and you watch what the church does. Oh, had to be a demon. You know? Don't you know what he was? And you don't realize you're insulting the of Jesus. The power of God to make people clean and whole. It's Jesus on trial, not him. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Is it the role of the father to have to go meet with the son outside? Or is it the role of the son to come and meet with the father? In Jewish culture, this is a real insult. He makes the father leave his own party and come outside to reconcile. But I want you to get this. We've got two sons that are lost, and the father did something with both sons. He went to meet them where they were, while they were still angry, while they were still in sin, while they were still outside of his house, because God will meet you where you are. Out and pleaded with him. Pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been saving, slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Is that what a father wants to hear from a son? I've been slaving for you and I was obedient? They treat their dad like an employer. How many church people treat God like a father versus how many treat him like an employer? Well, I've always done what is right. Well, good for you. Take your beanie and go play somewhere else. That's not what God is like. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I've never done anything wrong, but did you do anything good? It's not enough not to have bad fruit, saints. It's not enough not to be in blatant drug use. It's not enough not to be in adulterous affairs. What God requires of you is that you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Thirty, sixty, a hundredfold, He must get His increase. And that does not come from sitting on your salvation in a cold, hard pew. It comes from loving the people He loves, from imitating Him, from doing what He would do in the situation. Yet you never... Now He's going to charge the Father with wrongdoing. Yet you never gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours... He's no longer even his brother. Listen to the religious spirit. It blames God. It blames His fellow man. It blames everybody. When there was a problem between God and man in Genesis 3, a break in their relationship, it shows up between man and man. In Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. It's always this way. When you meet somebody that's bitter, that is angry, that is sullen towards people around them, the Word declares, you cannot love God that you cannot see if you do not love your fellow man that you see. Now, an obvious example would be racism. A less obvious example would be whoever it is in your life you're tempted to harbor hate. Quoting Lindy, who was quoting someone else, she said, harboring hate or bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. What profound wisdom out of such a young person. Must be God. But when this son of yours had squandered your property with prostitutes, has come home 
you killed the fattened calf for him. Is he angry because he's been mistreated? No, he's angry because God has shown so much mercy to someone else. You know, there's another parable like this. You remember the wage earners? Some go out early in the field, some go out late. Same exact principle. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Why do you think the son didn't understand everything that the father had with his? Because he never loved him right. He never treated him like a father. He treated him like an employer simply to be obeyed. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and he was found. What happens to the first brother? He's lost and he's found. What happens to the second brother? We don't know. Why do you think Jesus did that to the crowd? Because you're putting yourself in the role of these two brothers. And the choice is yours. The guy who's in sin, obviously, and finds mercy because he knows what he needs. The older brother who thought he had always done everything right, it was not so obvious what he needs. And you're left with a cliffhanger. Did he repent? Did he, did he reconcile with the father? Did it happen? Well, we don't know because you're the older brother. We find out today. We find out tomorrow. We find out for the rest of your lives. I could talk to you for hours. I already have. About how wrong it is to set this Scripture up as the parable of the prodigal. It puts the emphasis in the wrong place. The prodigal's doing fine. He's with God. It's the older brother who has the problem. Nothing could be more indicting of church life in America today. Nothing. When you look at this, you should see yourself and then decide, what will I do? Will I love my brother and be reconciled to my father? Or will I go on doing the same thing, expecting a different result? We're going to close here in about two seconds. I want to tell you that if you've been told that grace was something that is New Testament and not old, I want you to understand something. This is written in the New Testament, but it's before there was a Bible. Jesus is telling this story in the Old Testament era. Where did he get this idea? Well, things like Psalm 51 said, Lord, I know I've messed up bad. This is the King Eric translation. But I need your help. Have mercy on me. Do me. Give me a steadfast spirit. Create in me a clean heart. Psalm 57 said, Oh, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy on me, Lord. I've submitted to things I shouldn't and now I need your help. Psalm 86 says, Man, I am poor. I am needy. I need your mercy, Lord. And I'm going to read Isaiah 55. You can turn if you want. You don't have to. And we're going to close with these words. By the way, while I'm turning to Isaiah, write down Ephesians 2. Read that sometime this week. It says what you once were and what you're now called to be. Not believe, be. You hear me? You hear the difference? Not telling you what to believe, it's telling you what to be. Isaiah 55. Hear these words and we close with them. Seek the Lord, this is 55 verse 6, while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and He will have mercy on him. What will God do? Not with a sinner, but with the wicked. Remember, wicked's worse than sinner. He'll have mercy if they'll just begin to turn. 
and to our God, for He will freely pardon. Friends, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. The Lord's Prayer says, Forgive us our trespasses in the same manner that we forgive those who have trespassed against us. I encourage you today as we stand up and pray, examine your heart. Find forgiveness for people around you. Settle your debt with your brother in that way and then settle your debt with your God by treating Him like a loving God who it's not through your work but through His grace that you're in relationship with.